Hello, Simon. Hi. What's your background there you've got on the shelves? Yeah, this is my lockdown mania. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, we were a particularly wealthy family, and um, if I had any Lego, it was bags of old bits. And um, yeah, now I'm 52, I've got a little bit more disposable. I bought some Lego. I mean, if I could show you just here, actually, I've got something working. Can you see that over there? Oh, yeah. That's the that. new Camp Stadium. Oh, is it? Yeah. I've only got in three. Lego? Yeah, in Lego. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to Lego shops and buy it. Pretend I've got a son that I'm buying it for. <laughs> My wife hasn't left me yet, so it must be all right. I bought all the Star Wars Lego over lockdown to, to build with my kids. Yes. And then spent the majority of time doing it when they're in bed. Yeah, and they're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm doing all the bits of me doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Michael's got those idyllic little background there. It's like a sort of Santa's hut. Yeah. From, uh, yeah, it's San yeah Santa's, Santa's grotto. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we better get started, haven't we? Talking about Gillingham and all different things. We've almost done a podcast before we've got started with this one. So season three, episode eight of More Than A Job podcast. My name is Mike Bradford. Hi, it's Jay Woolerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Be clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like... And tonight on More Than A Job podcast, in association with Research Ed, we have the pleasure to welcome Simon Anstwiss to our 50th episode. Simon is a former head teacher of three schools, having qualified as a biology teacher at the start of his career. Simon is a former school inspector and now a senior education consultant at Steer Education. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, well, we are too. Just to get us kicked off, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up and your own experience of education in your school years? Grew up with a not particularly wealthy family, but I wasn't aware at the time, which meant I was well-parented, but um, we didn't have much. Um, I was fortunate to go to an excellent local village primary uh, with some inspiring teachers, who I still remember now. Um, what I would say is I think we moved house quite a lot, so... Um, that disrupted things for me, a lot of transition points, which I try, I've, I've tried to avoid like the plague with my own children. So I've, I've done lots of the traveling as a head rather than disrupt my children's education because of the impact it had on me. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to pass 11 plus and we can have a debate about you know, the, the various virtues and pitfalls of that system, but it certainly benefited me. Um, and that, you know, I ended up going to a local grammar school um, and uh, you know, my, my sister, for example, didn't pass 11 plus and she went to local secondary modern. Um, so within one family, we've had you know, a stark sort of um, illustration of what those two pathways did to us. But certainly for me, it changed my life looking back on it. Um, so I'm torn, really, because obviously I don't support you know, those two pathways as they are. But uh, you know, I benefited from it. Probably underperformed a little bit at exams, like most boys my age at that time did. Uh, I managed to scrape into university. Um, and then, uh, yeah, had a great time at uni, um, graduated, and then there, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I wanted to avoid teaching. There's a lot of teaching in the family. Um, and I don't think those people in the family particularly enjoyed it. So I didn't really have a, you know, a great impression of it. Um, and my, my sort of career from then has been punctuated by people saying, you ought to, dot, dot, dot. Um, and a, a friend of mine who became my best man said, you know, why on earth aren't you a teacher? And um, so I fought against my preconceptions and I went for it. Simon, just to pick up on a point you said about um, not supporting 11 plus or grammar schools, why, why do you not support those routes, considering they, they, they did you well? Well, I think because of what happened to my sister, really. I think it was unfair that um, my perception at the time was she didn't get the same opportunities in her, her pathway that I did. Um, and I I would advocate something where you, know, you had separate pathways in the same school rather than separate schools, because I think, um, you know, let's be honest, it, it became a sync school. Um, and... Uh, doing different qualifications. I think it changed life opportunities right from the age of year 11, which I think is really unforgivable. 
um, for that to happen. Uh, so I think, you know, I've got three children now, you know, highly academic daughter who ended up at Cambridge. Um, I've got another daughter who's, who's at Loughborough and I've got a son who just found school a bit of a struggle um, and he's joined the army. But they went to a school, they went to the same school and they all got the same opportunities and they all found their own pathway. They, they all found their own tribe. Uh, they all found their own passions. Uh, and they've, got, they've all had a very positive experience at school. I don't think I could say the same about you know, me and my sister. Um, and then I've got, I've got a little sister who went to you know, a conventional comprehensive school with, with all those pathways in it. So yeah, I mean, that's why I said, I said I was torn because uh, it, it's obviously had a massive impact on me. Um, but yeah, I sort of have survivor guilt, really. Um, I think I wonder how many people suffered from that system because they didn't get, you know, the alternative pathway wasn't as much value. Can I ask, you know, slightly personally, but has it caused resentment between you and your siblings? And do you see that in your life compared to their lives now, the, the, the massive impact that's had going through the ground? Well, no resentment, no, no resentment at all. But I, I just think, you know, reflecting at the age of 52, you can see that, um, looking back at I can see that as a bit pivotal moment and to be honest you know I had no cognition of taking the 11 plus at all um and then you know didn't see the, you know the significance of then and in fact I was a little bit upset because obviously my, me and my sister were going to go to different schools so um that was significant Whereas, were you yeah. told what it was for did you did you know what these exams were for that you were taking was that ever really told to you just your, you see quite bright take this test. I don't know if it's memory fade or um, I was told, but I, I, I don't remember being told particularly. I remember what I wrote and what I did. Um, and I, I remember there's only two of us in, in my school that passed, which was obviously scary in its own right, because you, know, you then had to manage the rest of the year with you two sort of going off somewhere different. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, looking back on it, I think... Um, I was incredibly fortunate. Simon, what was it that made you wanted to come in, come into teaching then from, from obviously going to this grammar school and thinking that you didn't want to do it and people were telling you, you know, maybe you should try it. What, what was the trigger then? Yeah, I, I liked talking about science. I was passionate about it. I, I enjoyed coaching sport. I, I, you know, I got a lot out of teaching um, as it was what I experienced then. But really, it was, uh, it was a couple of other people who said, you know, who saw it in me. And I'm I'm quite good at taking advice. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and also I, I you know I'd reached a sort of dead end. I'd, I'd graduated um, in 1992. It was a recession, so there was nothing on. So I was working in Pizza Hut with about ten graduates. You know, big bunch of losers all you know, serving pizzas. Um, well, I loved that year, but I think we all felt we ought to do something with our lives. Um, and. Uh, you know, I just responded to an advert for you know teacher training, but again, I don't you know with all due, with all honesty, I don't think you know I just jumped to joy, hooray! I'm doing what I always wanted to do. But I remember the interview for for Jordan Hill, as it was, I went to, uh, and I had to do a little mini lesson on onion cells, and I got right into it. And I felt it came naturally, um, and then you know I flew through the course. I did all my teacher training in Glasgow really challenging places like drum chapel <laughs> not much hiding place for an englishman there so um it's a good place to cut my teeth and i was lucky that i had great schools and they looked after me um uh, you know one guy called Irvin, um at a school in drum chapel who gave me some nuggets of advice and i still remember the first lesson i delivered on my own he, he, you know, i just didn't smile and, and the whole class was silent for the whole um hour and i i, I couldn't believe that they didn't know I was scared stiff. But um, that, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big game of bluff. Um, so, yeah, then I, that, that year, my passion was ignited, I think. And uh, it was obviously sitting there latently. But, um, yeah, I needed a kick in the pants. And, um, yeah, you ought to be dot, 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 you know, thing. But that, that, was, that, was, that, that was a time when it really, yeah, the fire was lit inside me. And now you've been a teacher, you've been a head teacher of three schools, you've been a school inspector, but now you're an education consultant for Steer. And today, uh, Monday the 28th of Feb, Steer have published uh, quite a, a comprehensive report into mental health in schools. 
And we're going to dig deep into the findings of this today, into this report. And we will we will publish a link to the report, which has is, is only come live today. An extensive review, as I've said, it's been gathered from schools for year seven to 13 students. Almost 100 mainstream secondary schools were included. Um, an assessed population of uh, greater than 15,000 students. So we can, to give it credibility, it certainly is extensive, it's deep, and it's well-researched. Simon, could you just start by giving us the key headlines of the report, and then we'll go into, into areas in greater depth shortly. The key thing to talk about here is, is self-regulation. Um, that's, that's what the STEERS tool uh, aims to measure. Uh, and that's the ability for children um, to be able to make the right decisions in the right socio-economic environments. Um, you know, from birth, we, 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 we are uh, developing our self-regulation every day. And as a parent, you know, my wish for my children has always been that you know they'll make the right decisions in the right, the right time because I, I won't be there. Um, and you hope that when they reach adulthood, you know, they're, they're great decision makers and they can adapt their decision making to the environment and the context. And that's what self-regulation is. So the tool effectively measures a, a child's ability to self-regulate. Uh, and what you what you don't want is is highly dysregulated children, um, those that you know can't make those right decisions and then the reason we call the steer is because that's the analogy it's, it's driving a car down a road with all the twists and turns and the signs and all the hazards that are there uh, which require self-regulation to be able to, to be able to navigate um, and you know, highly dysregulated children you've come from challenging backgrounds uh, who don't have that support and you've got highly over-regulated children who you know um, in a very narrow path there's not much experience in terms of hazards and turns and things like that uh, and both of those two extremes are not what we want for children. We want children you know, in the middle are able to self-regulate. So what the report identifies is that um, really the, the impact of the pandemic on young people in terms of their ability to self-regulate in school. Um, so and the trend is driven by girls, really, who are nearly 33% more dysregulated in school compared to boys we were only 15% more dysregulated. So there's been an impact on both genders, but you know, more than double uh, in young uh, in, in girls. Um, and there's various speculations as to why that might be, but it's really you know, up to individual schools to, to analyze you know, what's going on in their cohorts and their groups and their individuals. Um, uh, other headlines you know, are that um, there's been a you know, 25, uh, so that's 40% de decrease in trust of others. So the, the measurement of self-regulation you know, by STEER is split into four areas, trust of others, trust of self, seeking change and self-disclosure. But uh, we noticed there's been a 40% decrease in trust of others uh, during the pandemic uh, and a 25% decrease uh, in risk-taking. These are just a few of, of the headlines you can draw out the report. Obviously, people have to read the report to, to look at some of the nuances, but... Um, the big headline really is, is, is the differential impacts on teenage girls compared to teenage boys. Just to, to pick up on the 40% the decrease in trust of others, I mean, that's a really interesting headline when you think about the, what the past few years have been with, with the COVID pandemic, with Donald Trump in the White House and this push of fake news, with the growth of social media, TikTok, you know, even within the last few days, haven't we, we have seen false news, fake news appear on TikTok about the Russian-Ukraine crisis. Um, in terms of this, this decrease in trust of others, is there anything you can, you can say or, or you know about that as maybe as to why? Well, I think you've, you've hit a bit of the nail on the head there. And I think in normal times, what you'd find is that, is that school is what we call a protective factor. So, um, you know, we, we measure these um, aspects of self-regulation uh, in school uh, and we measure them out of school uh, and obviously with, with lockdown there, there has been very little in school uh, and, and teachers have had less chance to have an impact on the children reassure them uh, set them back on the right path uh, you know road to, to go back to the analogy again so i think that nudging and nurdling has, has, has been reduced 
uh, and then you know, children are left to sort of self-ruminate a bit more about what they're hearing uh, in the media. You know, particularly, you know, I've been particularly, you know, um, bothered by the messaging around exams, for example. I don't think that helped. You know, there was, you know, it's very difficult for teachers to, to reassure. So it's a bit like, you know, when you're panicking as an adult, you don't want to pass it on to your children, but uh, inevitably you do by osmosis. And, and when you don't know by February what's happening with exams and, and you're trying to deliver a curriculum, that transmits to the children. So um, I think, you know, we, the rural we, those decision makers, schools, could do a lot more around messaging in terms of exams and reassuring young people that not to worry about the learning gap. It's going to be the same for everyone else. We're going to focus on the skills. You'll make it all up. Um, I'm really passionate about the fact that, you know, COVID recovery premium should be focusing on repairing the mental health gap and the wellbeing gap rather than perceived learning gap. Because the analogy I use is if you have a plane coming out of the sky, you're told to put your mask on before you put your child's mask on. Well, you know, um, you know, we, we need to sort of bear that in mind with, with young people and preparing them for adult life and, and the world of work and further in higher education. I think you know, if I was ahead still, I would be focusing my resources and energies on ensuring that we re repair the self-regulation gap. Because if that's in place, you've got happy children who are motivated, who, who will overperform. And then, you know, make sure the messaging is, is you know, meticulous and constant uh, and unified in that, you know, children shouldn't worry about a perceived learning gap. But I think they, they pick up on all this through social media and the press and, you know, are terrified. You know, my daughter went through year 13 exams. They're on, they're off, they're on, they're off. Then she's worrying about CAGs. Uh, and, you know, you, I don't think I could have operated under that sort of atmosphere. Um, and you know, it doesn't surprise me that the trust of others has, has gone where it has. I think one of the most alarming things I saw in the port uh, is this increasing number of girls who go to lengths to hide distress, which has gone up twenty percent since uh, the pandemic. But yeah. the other one that I found was unhealthy perfectionism. And just because you were talking about social media and the impacts of social media there you were saying that before the pandemic 20 percent of girls had this unhealthy obsession with perfectionism that is now 80 percent since the pandemic what can you say why do you think that has now become the case and what is it we talked about catch-up funding potentially being misused which i do agree with in terms of the catch-up and what we should be doing when children came back after the pandemic what do you think it is that schools need to be doing to address this issue of perfectionism that girls seem to have at the moment? That's a great question, you know, and the, you've got to appreciate that the report obviously is an average for the whole UK and the whole of our data set on our group. So, you know, uh, it, it'd be wrong for me to speculate that this is the same situation in all schools. And I don't want to also diminish the fact that we're not, we're not saying that boys haven't suffered during lockdown either. Um, so it, it's really, I think, and I wouldn't want to patronise schools, but, you know, all I can say is what I did as a, as a head is that, you know, when I took on my first headship, I, I felt that I had a dashboard, if you like, for the academic side of the school. Um, you know, there's plenty of data, um, you know, ranging from grades all the way down to wall garden and question analysis, well, you know, and the things I could do in terms of structure and training. And, you know, and I, there were lots of bells and whistles and levers and dials, you know, and I, I could react to that. And I would share it with staff and, you know, um, it wasn't you know, a, a tool to beat them with, but it was just you know, it's a shared vision, you know, what, what we were going to do. On the other side of the school, if, if you like, the pastoral dashboard was very thin on the ground in terms of, you know, hard, meaningful, quantitative data. You've got attendance data, your own bespoke behavioural data, and then instinct. And I'm not saying instinct's wrong uh, or soft data isn't valuable, but... You know, I had, these, I had these totally different experience with these two dashboards. And, you know, I was desperate to get a better pastoral dashboard. Obviously, the, 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 the vision for the school is the two work together. You haven't got two sides of the school, you know. And I, you know but, you know, when you're taking on a school where, you know, the starting place is quite far back, you know, you just need to get the dashboards in place. And then that's, that's your first layer of change. And then, 
and then you want you know classroom teachers to be looking at pastoral care and adapting the way they teach and you want pastoral carers to be looking at academic data you know and it to be a whole so you know my advice to any head is you know find as many ways as you can to get your pastoral dashboard up to speed uh, and as informative don't abandon what you're you know, you're, you're getting in terms of teacher instinct because that's brilliant. It's gold dust. It's normally right. Um, but, you know, all the information you can get from the parents, either it's given to you by the parents or, or you know indirectly what the children are telling you directly and indirectly, um, and what, what, what you're seeing around the school. All of that, you know, needs to be collated in a way that, you know, can be understood, um, interpreted, actions put in place, and then impact measured that you know to mimic what you're doing with the academic side of the school that was that was my frustration you know and then um that you know that steer sold that for me um which is why you know i became such an advocate for it and i, I launched it in two schools and you know helped launch it across the school group as well because i felt you know you know we all come into education to have impact on young people's lives don't we one way or another whether it's you know um academic outcomes or password outcomes. I just felt as a teacher right from year dot um, that I never had the, the armory, you know, the, the sort of the skill set, um, the sort of tool belt to deal with the password issues I was, I was coming across. I was, I was given a register and told to go to room 36 and there's 10 AS and there's 30 children in there. I was 22. I was only, you know, six years older than them. And it was all picked up I talking to people in staff rooms and uh, yeah, I can't really remember going on any pastoral training um, or, you know, just being all at sea. Um, I found it, even when I became a vice principal in academy in, in charge of student and family support, you know, good at detecting it, but then, you know, what next? So the long answer to your question is, you know, Get a dashboard, whatever it is that you need, you know, to create that dashboard for yourself that's under, understood and meaningful. Have an encyclopedia of actions and know which ones link to which things you're seeing on the dashboard and measure impact. And then and just repeat as much as you can. Because I I promised myself when I became a head, and I can assure you, by the way, I, I wasn't insanely ambitious. I sort of, you know, stepped over the dead bodies to get there. Um, uh, you know, that if I was in a school where something horrible happened, I wouldn't be able to carry on because I, I don't think I could ever let, I, I was ultimately responsible. So it, it was a case of making sure that I had all the mechanisms in place so that I could walk, finish my career, think, did I do everything I could have done to prevent, you know, harm coming to a young, young person? And God forbid, the worst case scenario, which I won't even mention, but that is a, you know, that is an instant sort of, you know, pack your bags and walk off because I think, you know, I would feel I've, I've let a young person down. Simon, you, you, you mentioned about just uh, getting a dashboard. You talk about the four areas in the report, trust of others, trust of self, seeking change and self-exposure. Can you talk about those last two, the seeking change and self-exposure? What what do they mean? Well, seek, which, which, which ones do you want again? Seeking change and... I think you said self-exposure, was it? Self-disclosure. Oh, sorry, self My <laughs> <laughs> apologies. Dan, Dan, Dan will keep that one in. I need to get my hair in aid. Self-disclosure, my apologies. Self-disclosure is obviously, you know, uh, you, you've got children who don't tell you anything. Um, we, at Steer, we talk about a front stage and a backstage. Um, you know, and all of us as human beings have a front stage and a backstage, you know, we, we present well you know as a head i used to describe myself as having to be the pub landlord you know you've always got to be in a good mood you can't present at the bar as a misery no one will come to your pub so you know it's always i used to go my lines i left the office whatever had been bothering me it was out smiling you know so we all have a front stage a backstage and, and we manage them in the right ways but young people haven't developed those skills to manage it in the right social context so self, you, you get children that over share has been one extreme and then children who undershare is the way I'd describe it. Um, that, that's, that's what we mean by self-disclosure. And seeking change is, is the same. You know, some people, you know, uh, you know, people constantly move house or constantly changing their job or, you know, uh, that's, that's unhealthy change. And equally people who, who don't do anything 
So those are the two extremes. And what you want is to be judicious about seeking change for the right reasons. And, you know, when I, through my career, I felt if my guide to myself about seeking change was if I started moaning about where I worked, it's time to move on. You know, I'm not going to be moving the school an inch to the left. You know, so that was my indicator for me that change is required. And, you know, and some people are addicted to change, aren't they? You know, we've all had leaders who just change things for change's sake to prove a point or to make a mark. So, you know, um, a, a good leader has to decide what's, what needs preserving, what, what need, needs keeping, what, what doesn't, providing reasons for change, pace for change, bringing people with you. Um, so, you know, that's a skill that we all need in life, particularly if, you, if you're a leader. Simon, the report shows that boys' self-regulation outside school has actually improved during the pandemic. Why have boys had better outcomes than girls? Yeah, um, that, that was um, very interesting um, a reveal from the report. We, um, I think, again, I'll go back to the point that you know, you've got to understand this is a UK average and that, you know, um, different schools have different contexts and might be showing different patterns. Um, but I think it's um, probably to do with the way well, one of our hypotheses is, you know, um, is that you know the way young people of the different genders may form relationships, particularly one-to-one -one relationships. So um, boys may, some boys may, you know, continue task-focused socialising. Um, they prefer restricted small one-to-one -one meetups um you know there's other evidence from other reports that males generally were less anxious about the pandemic as a baseline um that you need to take into consideration for girls i think you know um the one-to-one -one or the lack of meetups you know cause them to sort of you know um co-ruminate as you say you know sort of you know um overanalyze and overthink things so i think I, without wishing to simplify things or generalize i think you know that i've always you know as a head in my experience not always but boys are great underthinkers and girls are great overthinkers i use the word great advisedly because they're both skills so you know if, if i was dealing with boys poor behavior you know they couldn't remember how it started you know uh, generally what is what i find much to my amusement, you know, and, and then an hour later, they'd be on the bus together, having as if nothing had happened. Whereas if I had a group of girls that had fallen out and I was dealing with that, you know, I, I often had to say to them, look, anything more than a week ago is inadmissible, but on the basis that I can't remember what happened a week ago. Uh, and, you know, you, it would take a lot longer to unpick. So either of those traits isn't, isn't a problem. I just think it's, it's, it's about being biased in either direction a biased underthinker or biased overthinker. So I think there might be something in there, but, you know, again, I, I caveat that with, it depends on your school, it depends on your context, depends on your groups. And I go back to my advice, which is, you know, you need to look at cohorts, groups, and individuals, and that's where you'll put things right. I think to make a sweeping generalization like that, but obviously there is a UK average. That's our, you know, hypothesis, yeah, unproven. Just, we've spoken to quite a few guests recently, and one of the things that they always try to get away from is this horrible thing where they say, kids are resilient, they just bounce back. And, you know, they've always just said, oh, they're kids, they're resilient, they bounce back. Which isn't true, but do you think potentially that that shows that it is true in boys, that they still have a little bit more resilience than girls potentially do, that they're, they're able to, or do you think it's a persona that they as you taught that inward and that outward at the front and at the back of the stage, the boys have that potential roughness that they feel that they need to show they're I'm resilient gonna, and can bounce back. I'm going to answer this in a different way in that I, I went to a single sex grammar school and I don't think it did me any good. So from that point on, I've always tried to work in co-educational schools that are all through. That's been my passion, nursery to sixth form, you know, the whole journey. Um, and I've always said, when I was talking to parents about co-education and the benefit of it, I said, you, if you're going to draw a graph of boys and girls, boys are too horizontal and girls are too vertical. And you read that what you like. And what I want the school to be is a lot more diagonal. So, you know, it's a benefit that they learn together, you know, and 
I don't want to generalize, but you know, particularly in sixth form, you know, you'll see the, the behaviors in terms of preparation of exams or handing in uh, assignments. Always play brinkmanship, uh, and, and girls sort of worry about it a week out. And I just wish there was somewhere that they could learn off each other. But I think by the time they get to the end of you know, sixth form, they, they, they are a little bit better at picking up on the skills that each other has in order to manage their, their workload. So I don't think it's a question of resilience. It's a case of, um, and I, I would never assume that children are resilient. That, that is a dangerous assumption to make. Um, I think we do underestimate young people sometimes, um, uh, I think as a positive, but I would never make assumptions you know, based on my experience of the most unlikeliest of individuals that have come off the road that I wasn't expecting at all. And you know, particularly that have been highlighted by when we used tier, a steer as a tool, some of the children that were popped up as priority pupils, you know, we'd have our SLT shake our heads going, well, this tool's a load of rubbish. What, why is it pulled up so-and-so? Um, you know, a month later, you know, something drastic's happened. You think, oh, we should have listened to that advice. So it's a lot to ask pastoral staff to be able to pick up on every single piece and, and to, to make assumption that children are resilient because of the way they present. I think it's dangerous. And I go back to that front stage and backstage. I think boys have got probably got a better front stage, uh, maybe, that, than, get, than girls. And girls stick more on their backstage than boys. But um, again, that, that's a generalisation. And you know, it could easily be the opposite. Simon, in the report, the, the data provide strong evidence that public exams have a direct negative emotional effect on the well-being of students. Now, surely Steer are not advocating the end of exams based upon this data? No, of course not. No, we, you know, that, that decision is left to policymakers. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we, we all have views on that, but that, that's not what the report was about. I think what, what I would say about, um, you know, preparing young people for exams is that, you know, and I don't think any head would mind me saying this, that you know, there is always more that we can do to, to prepare children for exams. I think you know, demystifying and debunking, I think, is, is, is a bit of that and getting the messaging right around, um, you know, that it, that it isn't the end of your life. You know, I will say here publicly, my A-levels were a disaster. Uh, and I didn't go to the university I wanted to go to. But, you know, uh, I, I got through it. You know, I met my wife and, you know, and, Whilst my three children take the mickey out of my grades, because I've shared it with them, I'll say, well, you wouldn't exist if I hadn't made a mess of it. So one door shuts, another one opens. And I think that's that's the resilience building you want to build into children you know, and say, look, you know, yes, you've got targets, you've got grades to go for, but, you know, the world doesn't end because you're two grades off. And it might be that, you know, there's a whole new life waiting for you in City A compared to City B. And I think if you compare children that way, I certainly did that with Oxbridge candidates quite a lot. He said, you know, your life's not going to end because you don't go to Oxbridge, you know, uh, and we go through all the successful people that haven't gone there. And I just think we need to really work hard on that messaging with, with young people. The other thing I think we need to build into this report is that I think the debacle around exams from beginning to end um, has to have had an impact, not just on those children in those year groups, but the others watching, you know, those people sort of going to, to the slaughter, if you like. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I, I ch a lot of children said, I just wish I could take exams. It's, it's the not knowing that's, that's driven me mad. It's the relying on teachers to come up with grades. And I can see that they're torn about it as well. They want to give me the best grade. They're getting criticised publicly for grade inflation, uh, uh, which isn't their fault uh, uh, you know, without the moderation process in place. And then a bizarre algorithm which is, is another podcast, uh, and as a, a statistician and a data geek, you know, you know, I, I, I tear my hair out at what what, what went on. Um, I think that that hasn't helped. So it's it's with it's a danger to just blame exams. Uh, I think it's more about how they're positioned, how they're messaged, you know, and and, and what the children have seen at the car crash of the last couple of years. Would you? advocate for the exams still taking place in summer or do you think it's an exam series too soon for these kids with what they've been through with what you're seeing with your report good question well I'm not in school at the moment you know I've, I'm not ahead anymore so I think you know I've, I've got to be careful there um 
I, you know, in my experience, is the way I'll start the sentence, you know, I think most young people were really upset they didn't get a chance to try and test themselves. Whether it's the right way of testing them or not, I think it's like, you know, as a sports fan, I've always had an issue with sports that are judged by other people. You know, football is very easy. Who scores the most goals wins. Dancing depends on, uh, you know, dancing is a fantastic sport, don't get me wrong, but it is ultimately measured by someone else. I couldn't personally do a sport measured by someone else. Four years training, blah, blah, blah. You get a dodgy judge. You make some weird judgment about you based on something you've done or haven't done. Whereas if you lose 4-3, well, there you are, you've lost. So I think the children probably feel a bit similar in that, you know, even if they have benefited from so supposed grade inflation, I think they, they, they feel they haven't had the chance to have that right of passage. Is and that's not all children, of course. You know, I, I know my son was delighted not to have uh, exams as, as one case in point. So it really is down to the individual. But I think that was the overriding impression I got, particularly for Year Thirteen children who'd pick those subjects because they're passionate about them. They were driven to, to study one of them at the university. Um, yeah, I think that, that was an overriding feeling. So, yeah, put them on. And I think um, if, we, if we're not having exams because of social distancing, well, the thing I couldn't quite get is their social distance anyway. That That's what an exam hall looks like. I can never get it. And they all queue outside social distance. You know, so, yeah, as long as we'd adjusted the content and, and marked it fairly and moderated it brilliantly uh, and didn't use an algorithm, then I think... You know, I think children would have been happier rather than happy. Um, final question for you then about the report. I mean, you talked to yourself obviously about the difference between yourself and, and your siblings and the schools you went to. Have you seen any significant difference between state schools and independent schools within your report? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the bar chart is there for everyone to see. Um, I think the caveat is, you know, the, the data sets aren't the same size. So, uh, yeah. Scientifically, we've got to be careful about making direct comparisons. The second thing I would say is I've 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 been ahead in independent schools and state academies in vulnerable areas, and I've seen, you know, worrying mental health issues in both schools. So I don't think you know affluence or perceived affluence is, um, you know, a barrier or you know, negates any sort of mental health issue. But um, you know, it's inevitable that you know um, children that go to independent schools. Uh, are going to have a lower baseline, as, as the graph suggests. But there's, there's been a, a, you know, a, you know, a rise in, you know, mental health issues in both sectors, uh, and uh, we'd say the state sector is, is a little bit more. But um, you know, not that I would draw massive significance to it. But um, you know, I, I have taught you know, and, and led both those types of schools, and you know, I've I've seen mental health issues, you know, in both that um, I think I wouldn't have perceived before I joined the profession. Simon, just before we go on to our quick fire section, just wanted to talk a little bit about STIA. Can you just explain to our listeners how they get in touch with you at STIA? What are you all about? What's on the website? And if they want to learn more about mental health, what, what do they have to do? Well, the mission statement for STIA is that we want every child to have the benefit of a tracking system that can help them um, or help schools to improve their self-regulation up to year 11. At year 11, they get the data and we have, we have a tool called Take the Wheel uh, and they can start to, you know, they get taught how to use their data uh, and how to, you know, um, moderate their biases and um, improve their soft skills and make them better learners and better individuals uh, and better self-regulators. Um, you know, and we want as many children in the UK and abroad to have access to this tool. You know, we're all Everyone in the team is driven by a love of pastoral care. We're all ex-practitioners. That's what floats our boat. Um, it's true to say the company did, you know, it's, it, it, it evolved from, you know, mainly being available in independent schools first, but as the company's grown, uh, we're able to make it more accessible to, to state schools. In fact, you know, um, my, my task is to, is to get multi-category trusts uh, interested. Uh, we've got a big one already. Um, so yeah, we're all driven by the same desire that to to I mean, without being too, too poetic, but you know, Desmond Tutu said, you know, we've got to stop putting people out a river and find out why they're falling in. 
and if that's an overused statement, I don't make any apology because it nails it completely. Um, and I think that, that's why the tool can be used from year three all the way up to year 13. And, and we've even got a tool called U-Steer, which can be used beyond school. So when I, when I was talking to parents at open days, you know, prospective parents, I'd say, look, you know, I'm an inspector and every school I go into, they self-evaluate pastoral care as excellent. I've known one yet that said good or adequate. They're all excellent. Uh, and it, it drives me a bit mad, to be honest, because, you know, I'll say, where's the evidence? You know, what, what impact have you had? And, you know, I've had things like, oh, we've got a tutor system. Oh, everyone's got a tutor system. You know, great. But, you know, what 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 dashboard have you got? What is, what is it you're doing that is significantly different? Um, how, how granular are you? How proactive are you? Um, how often are you assessing this? You know, so steer is three three times a year. You know, during a school you know, ten years, got 30, 30 touch points, and they'll get all that data. And when they go to university, and, and the school protective, protective factor isn't there anymore, and my first term at university was a disaster. You know, I ran out of money, lost a girlfriend, was all at sea, wasn't eating properly. You know, and I went back to my mum, looking like you know a sliver of my former self. I wish I'd had an app. On a mobile phone so what did i do in year 10 when i was finding work difficult oh i did the teachers did this for me and you know when i was in year 12 and i was running it myself what did i do when you know i was having problems with, with relationships across the school oh i did this you know for myself so when i talk to parents say, you've got a tool there that's proactive and it's in the moment and it carries on looking after them after they've left now you tell me that pastoral care isn't excellent in school, but it can carry on doing it after they've left. So that that that's what Steer is for me, and you know, and it's why I used to bore people about it even before I worked for Steer. You know, and I you know, I made it a non-negotiable in two schools, and I even persuaded forty other heads in my group to go with it. So that's what I would say say to people. It, you know, and it also it's the best training your staff will get in terms of pastoral care no longer handing a register to some poor 22 year old to go off to room 36 and try and you know care for 30, 30 young people without, you know, without a first clue um you know you you be the best cpd you, you you'll get and also the, the the moment for me was when i i had all my pastoral leaders around a table and we got the data back and 75 percent of the people was in about already so you could you could say you are brilliant pastoral carers look without this fancy tool You've nailed seventy five percent already. What this tool can do is maybe give you some other ideas about what you could do that you hadn't thought of. But equally, there's twenty five percent of children we hadn't spotted, and, and all of us agree we couldn't get to the end of our careers missing twenty five percent every year of pupils that you know could have easily been identified, uh, and, and something could be done for them. So um, that's that's what drove me. That's what keeps me passionate. And people can get in, in touch with me if, if they Google my name. It's a very strange second name, A-N-T-W-I-S. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, steer.education is the website. Um, Simon Antwis at steer.global is my email address. If you, want, if you want to get in touch, happy to take an email. Brilliant. And, I, and I'm sure many of our listeners will because it seems a pretty unique thing. And, and like you said, even if you identify 25% that you wouldn't have known about, that's a, that's a, in terms of number of students and lives that you're potentially changing, that's a huge thing. So, so well done to everyone at Steer uh, for that. We're going to move on to our quick fire questions now. So these are short answer ones. You're not, don't worry, you're not being inspected yourself here. But <laughs> just a one, a one, one or two word answer on these. And I, I'm going to run through these very quickly. So oh, the okay. first one is marking. Too much, no grades, comments, read and respond, do it live in the classroom. Feedback. Emails. Uh, they need to be managed. Uh, read them from the top down, not the bottom up. Um, don't do reply all. Department time. Create social space. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that police stations have become less effective because they got rid of the canteens. Booklets for lessons. A handy tool, not a crutch. Middle leaders. Vital. Change agents. Engine room. Doesn't matter how good your SLT is. If the middle leadership are excellent as well, you're stuffed. Data drops. Uh, always have a reason. Uh, it should save you work, not create work. Mock exams. Uh, they're for the pupils, not the teachers. It should be it's a, an experience. Parents' evenings. 
Oh, blimey. Speed dating on acid. Uh, I think everyone feels under an obligation. Teachers, staff, parents. I think there's one big learning from lockdown. Do them online, targeted, uh, try to avoid a sense of obligation. Nearly at the end of these now. Isolation booths. Not very restorative. I'm sure there are better interventions than that. Exclusions. Absolute utter last resort before exhausting all other interventions. Silent corridors. Not for me. I let children talk before the assembly started, because that's the whole point of an assembly, isn't it? To talk. A bit like the, the police canteen again. So I think, you know, when children are asked politely, they should know when to be silent. And that's only for the benefit of communication rather than some draconian power trip. And last one, free schools. Why not? Where the context is right. Brilliant. You've, uh, you've powered through those. I could have said a lot more on each, but there you go. Yeah. No, I, I could tell, but, well, obviously some, some strong opinions, but pretty balanced as well throughout. Um, well, we're nearly at the end of the, the interview, Simon, but we've got our so-called fun questions. So this is where we get to find a little bit out about yourself and, and what you like. Again, I'll, I'll get kicked off with these. Are you a tea man or a coffee man, Simon? I'm what, I'm what you call a coffee fascist. If I get offered it, I look over people's shoulders into their kitchen to see that they've got a proper coffee machine. I could lose friends over it, yeah. In fact, I used to get naughty children to make me a coffee to calm them down and to uh, make the conversation a lot easier. So they, all, all my disruptive children became uh, baristas. Coffee, definitely coffee. <laughs> Hopefully in the future, at some point, we'll get a chance to meet up in person. What can we buy you from the bar when we do? Guinness. You rarely, rarely go wrong with Guinness, wherever it's served. Okay, then. And as you're sipping on this pint of Guinness, you're listening to your music, what would be your top artist that we, if we delved into on your Spotify or other platforms? We'd be struggling on Spotify. I'm, I'm still a bit stuck in the dark ages, really. Um, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's you too. Sorry. And have you got a guilty pleasure in there? Have you got that one that one group or song that you wish you didn't like, but you really do every time you hear it. I'm a James fan as well. And uh, when I hear Sit Down. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, great show. Yeah. So sit down if... and embarrass my children. <laughs> so if you were shipwrecked on a desert island, all your food and drink needs are taken care of. So you've got your Guinness. What two things would you take with you to help aid your survival? Again, I'm sorry to say this, but an iPhone. Sorry. And, and I think any pupils of mine would be horrified to hear that. Uh, any sort of ball, football, cricket ball or rugby ball. Who's the most famous person that you've ever met? And what did you say to them? Yeah, I don't know if I'm, I would classify it as a met, but I was, I was in a line of people that Princess Anne walked past when we we opened the academy in Bristol that I worked at. And um, I can't remember what I said. I, I know it was hopeless and uh, kowtowing and simpering, which I'm embarrassed about. There you go. But uh, I was starstruck. Simon, what's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? I mentioned before that uh, various people during my career have been kind enough to come up to me and say, you should be dot, dot, dot. Um, why aren't you dot, dot, dot? Um, and there's a data manager I work with at a school in Bristol. Uh, and during a, um, I'd, I'd had to arrange an inset day and it was about mentoring. And I was trying to teach the staff to be mentors. So we had to set up these awful role play and, you know, where one was a mentor, one was a mentee, one was an observer. Anyway, I went up as a mentee and in front of the whole staff, she was the mentor. And it started off quite light and then it got a bit deep. And she said, you know, why aren't you ahead yet? You know, and I go, I'm not ready for it. And she goes, why? And it, it, in that sort of challenge, which I sort of try to beat off and, and try to look at it and say, can you light it up a bit, please? You know, I don't think the staff want to hear about my personal career, but... I think looking back on it, I was really grateful that she, she, did, she did that, gave me that proverbial kick in the pants. So, um, yeah, be ahead was the, the best advice I got. But with that, also, it's not a race. And um, whenever anyone comes to me and say, I'm thinking about headship, 
the first question I asked him was, how old are you? And if they say 35, like, that's, that's, oh, you're mad. What are you doing? But, you know, you've got plenty of time. You can't be ahead for 30 years, for heaven's sake. So, you know, spend longer learning your trade. It's not, not you're not a better head because you got there first. In the, in the same way, parents insist on their 12-year-old child taking maths and getting a C used to drive me mad. Um, why not wait for four years and get an A star or grade nine as it is now? So, yeah, be ahead, but don't turn it into a race. And the final question, Simon, yourself and we steer, what's next for you? How do you foresee the next 12, 24, 36 months playing out? Yeah, obviously I just started this role in January. So, you know, um, I, I want to give this a good few years and I, yeah, I want to spread this tool to as many young people as possible uh, and make it as accessible as possible to all schools and all children in, in all situations. And I think generally make a difference to society uh, in, in a way I did as a head and, and you do as teachers. Uh, the privilege of becoming a deputy or a head or the position we're now is you, you could probably impact more people. And I think that should be everyone's driving aim during their career is, you know, it's not necessarily about promotion, but can you influence more and more? And I'm, I'm equally respectful of people who stay in the classroom for 40 years because they were they were impacted on 40 years worth of children coming through doing chemistry. Hats off to them. But I chose to try and you know, elevate to the ranks. As I say, it wasn't really my intention. It, it does sometimes get thrust upon you, um, looking back on it. So, yeah. Second thing, I'd like to mentor heads um, in any way, shape or form. I'm doing it informally now with a few friends here and there, which I really enjoy. Uh, if I could formalise that, I'd love to. If I, if I, I've got anything to offer. Um, uh, I do miss teaching a lot. Um, it'd be nice in my dotage to sort of pop back in the classroom and you know tr uh, try my hand at it. But uh, I I've always been terrified to go back and start at the beginning. Um, I said that opening is ahead to, to new staff. I don't think I've, I don't think I've, I've got the skills to go back to the beginning again. So yes, yeah, well done to you. And then uh, the last thing was I really got involved with looked after children in Bristol. Um, and had a huge impact on a few individuals. Um, you know, I, I, I nearly fell off my seat when I found out the numbers of looked after children in Bristol. Um, and I just think um, we could probably do more for, for that, that particular group. So, you know, I'd look to volunteer or something you know, after I've retired. So those three or four things there, I think, are on my, on my mind. So still absolutely loads to do, but. Obviously, at the moment, you're working with Steer. And, and just to remind our listeners, uh, obviously, you've, you've, you've published that report today. Uh, we're going to put a link on, like Dan said, onto the uh, onto the onto our website and, and onto our okay. Twitter. But Simon Antwis, um, consultant to Steer Education, ex-head teacher, thanks for joining us tonight on More Than A Job podcast. It's been great. Thank you so much. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, cause you begins like...